This podcast is brought to you by SIDGRAPH Asia 2014, running from the 3rd of December to December 6th this year in Shenzhen in China. FX Guide is proud to be associated with SIDGRAPH Asia and is the official podcast of the show. Netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles and Sydney, you're listening to this week's FX Podcast from fxguide.com. Thanks for joining us for this FX podcast. The FX podcast is where we talk one-on-one with top visual effects artists doing cutting-edge work. We dig deep into the technical side, advance the craft of visual effects, and pay respect to the hardworking people creating amazing work. We do a lot of podcasts here at FX Guide. Be sure to check them all out at fxguide.com slash podcasts. So this week, uh, we're going to talk about SIGGRAPH Asia, which FX Guide is a media partner with, and our Mike Seymour and John Montgomery will both be in attendance in China. And today, we're going to speak with Scott Ross, who's the keynote speaker at SIGGRAPH Asia, uh, as well as another session which Mike and, and Scott will talk about. Listeners of this podcast will be well-versed in Scott's history, as he's appeared several times here on the FX podcast. He has a unique perspective on the visual effects business, having run ILM, created Digital Domain, and he's just been such a strong advocate for the business for over 30 years. Um, His keynote will focus on a China business perspective, and Scott and Mike will talk about that. I'll let them uh, explain what he's going to be talking about and what the keynote's all about. I think you'll really enjoy the conversation. Before I get to that, I just wanted to mention that we have a new term starting over at FXPHD, our online training site. We've got a bunch of new courses ranging from 3D equalizer, digital matte painting, there's a DOP lighting course, an intro to flare and flame assist, Golem Crowd, I think that one should be pretty popular, Houdini, a Nuke Beauty Work course, which I think people should be interested in. And what I'm very happy about is the Nuke Studio course. I've been using Hero since the beginning and anxious to get into Nuke Studio and really start uh, working. And this is uh, the second of our Hero classes. And I think you really enjoy that one. So I would check that out. There's a lot to choose from and we have even more repeat classes running that cover so much more. So head on over to fxphd.com and check out what we have. And course packages start at $299, which is quite a small price to expand your skill set. So that'll do it for the plug. Let's jump now to our own Mike Seymour speaking with Scott Ross about Seagraph Asia. And I'm joined by Scott Ross. How are you, Scott? I'm well. How are you, Michael? So you're a keynote speaker at uh, SIDGRAPH Asia uh, in Shenzhen. I'm looking forward to hearing you in person because I'm obviously going and uh, and we like SIDGRAPH Asia for a whole lot of reasons. Um, did you approach them? Did they approach you? How did you get involved to speak in, uh, in China? Uh, Darren Grant, who um, used to be, I guess, the chief technology officer over at Method, and prior to that was the chief technology officer over at Digital Domain after I had left in DD version 2.0. And um, at DD version 1.0, Dar- um, Darren Grant went worked uh, with me within the sort of games division, and then he wound up being involved with the software group. So I've known him since he was, you know, as we like to say, a mere child, and his career has blossomed. And he contacted me and asked me if he's heading. He was heading up the business symposium, right. and he asked me, considering you know the work that I do in China and the time that I spend in Asia, if I would consider 
sort of keynoting the business symposium. And um, it turned out that my schedule was right in that I needed to be in Shanghai for a project that I'm working on. And the calendar sort of lined up. And I said, yeah, that would be great. I could go from Shanghai to Shenzhen fairly quickly and easily. And so I'd love to do that. And then about a week later, I wound up getting contacted um, by him and a gal, and I'm going to try to remember her name, Carrie D'Souza mm-hmm. might be her name. And they contacted me and said, you know, while you're here, would you be interested in keynoting the entire event? And so never shy for publicity or being in the light, I, I hesitated for a nanosecond and said, sure. <laughs> Are you still going to be involved with the business symposium or are you just doing the keynote speech on I'm Thursday? I'm going to do both. Okay. I'm going to do both. I, I, you know, and the, and the, the format for the business symposium, which you know, Darren was very excited about uh, accepting, was instead of getting up there and keynoting and giving a speech like, you know, um, like Carl Rosenthal did a couple of years ago or even John Texter where you sort of, it's like a sermon from the Mount. I suggested that it, if we could do it in the way of, uh, you know, at the actor's studio where we would sit down in two easy chairs and, <laughs> and he would just ask me questions and, and I would talk and then we would take questions from the audience. So, you know, the preparation for the business symposium is, really not much preparation because it's just going to be sort of like a fireside chat between Darren and myself and the other people in the audience. And the only thing I'm really concerned about is, you know, the translation of it all. Um, having spent time in China, oftentimes a lot of the folks don't speak English, but Darren said that he felt that um, most of the key business people would bring along an interpreter with them. And so while it wasn't simultaneous translation, it would be speaking and then hesitating a bit and then having their translate, later's translate for them. So I'm excited about that format because, you know, then it it's less about me delivering a message and it's more about sort of um, delving into what the issues are in the industry as a whole and in particular what the industries, what the what the problems could be for the industry within sort of this opening up new marketplace in Asia. Are you doing any kind of translation on your main Thursday uh, eleven o'clock speech for the main keynote, or is that going to just well, my, be? Normal? My hope for that is that that'll be simultaneously translated because the main keynote speech will be, you know, a, a keynote presentation. I'm going to try to stay away from slides and arrows and photos because my experience with that particularly at a country and here in countries that don't necessarily read or write english is you throw a slide up on the screen and you know you try to make points to that slide and everybody's looking at you like i have no idea what you're talking about because i don't read english so um i think it will be less of a formal presentation of sort of a keynote or or powerpoint and more of just trying to hit important issues as I see them and, and as I see it affecting Asia and particularly China because it takes place in Shenzhen and they're the burgeoning sort of new exciting marketplace. So the purpose or the, the premise of your talk is can Asia become uh, Hollywood, at least um, 
as I understand it, for that Thursday talk. Um, I don't want you to sort of give the talk now beforehand, but I mean, what is your sort of uh, direction in approaching this? Well, you know, I'm old enough to have gone through the various iterations of um, countries that have come online that have become world economic powers and have gained a great deal of economic strength. Um, and, and generally speaking, when that happens, whether it was, you know, Japan during the bubble time or Korea post the Japanese bubble or Germany as it was going through um, its TV sort of burgeoning business, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, where their decision was they wanted to play, uh, and, and India, that almost every country has taken a similar tact, which is we want to be in Hollywood and we, we want to be in the business of producing, developing, distributing worldwide global media. And each one of them has failed. And um, I'm going to talk about why I thought they failed and why I think that the opportunity for success now is, is actually available and that the Chinese in particular are sort of approaching it in a different way than, let's say, the other countries have in the past, particularly Asian countries like Japan and Korea. And on one hand, um, they do have a chance of succeeding, but there are a bunch of sort of stumbling blocks that China has, um, both in terms of governmental oversight, um, cultural issues, and you know, ultimately, what's the purpose for China, in particular China, wanting to be in the global media business. Because we've seen uh, countries like Singapore, which are operating more as kind of an offshoot from the, you know, West Coast almost, uh, less of a kind of a media generator and more of a media facilitator. Though they are doing original work, but they're just, you know, in sync with what's happening from a, a US kind of company. But that's not... That's like not, Lucasfilm, for example. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's not what you're talking about with China, right? Well, the Chinese have, you know, again, I, I've been lucky enough to be involved in various Chinese companies and, and their efforts in trying to be a worldwide global media um, developer. And they've transitioned. You know, one of the things about China is that if you think you know China, just stay away for three months and come back, and it's a totally different China, right? <laughs> and so... In a very short period of time, I, I guess I started really getting involved in China in about 2005. So here we are nine years later, and I've seen the changes that China has gone through, particularly as it relates to media and entertainment, um, in, in a very accelerated fashion. And they're also very pragmatic. And with that pragmatism... They're also incredibly financially oriented, but more importantly, and I think this is one of the stumbling blocks that they're going to have to address, they still see media as propaganda. And um, I think they have, because of the disconnect between the West 
and China for so many years that 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 now they're sort of coming online, sort of in a virulent way in in terms of capitalism. They still don't understand the West in similar ways as as Westerners don't understand the East, and they make assumptions that um, might be antiquated. I'll give you an example. Um, When I was coming up, I was um, sort of a child of the 60s, and given my age and and my experiences, the military in the United States always seemed to be the very conservative, stodgy, uptight, you know, sort of emblematic of, of the establishment, while the arts community was exactly the opposite. You know, the arts community was the community that I was involved with, and they were always questioning authority and challenging the status quo, etc. In China, it's actually, interestingly enough, the opposite, (laughs) where you'll sit down with, let's say, generals or highly placed military people, and they're so much more in tune with what's happening on a global basis, because they had to be, right, uh, then let's say their film community and their art community, which is not in tune with a global sensibility and are incredibly conservative and very, very careful about how they do what they do and how they say what they want to say. Um, and so it's almost like um, a mirror world in some ways. Now, and the, and the Chinese filmmakers, and a, a statement that, a couple of them made, which I thought was very interesting, was that the reason they want to be in the global media business is because they look at the reason why America has become such a powerful nation was because the, of America, America's capability of being able to spread American lifestyle and culture through the movie industry, through Hollywood. And so they look at filmed entertainment as propaganda, a way to be able to spread their worldview and their cultural beliefs throughout the world. Because I think China feels like they're terribly misunderstood in the world, and they see the opportunity to use their media uh, reach to be able to change world opinion. they missed the whole part that maybe that was the way the U.S. was in the 30s and 40s and 50s, but they've sort of missed the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. And they don't really see that, you know, films today um, and a global entertainment doesn't, doesn't glorify the American way of life. In fact, oftentimes what it does is it criticizes it. And conceptually, the Chinese have a really hard time in understanding the concept of critical analysis of their government or of the way they live their lives. So that disconnect, they sort of have a fractured narrative. As an art community, they really don't feel comfortable expressing themselves as artists for fear of, A, what's happened in the past, and B, you know, it's, it's been such an ongoing repressive culture for so many years that that has become norm to them. That's the way it is. And then again, you go back and you speak to the military leaders, and they don't see it that way. They see 
China as being part of the world, and because they've had the relationships of and reach on a global basis to deal with people from around the world, they have a very different view of China and what entertainment is all about. So that's just you know an example of one of the issues that they face that I think they will be able to change over a period of time. And, um, and I think the way to do that is to wind up building relationships with other artists around the world, as opposed to, for example, what the Japanese did was they built up relationships with brands and studios. Yeah. And I think that the, the Chinese, for example, sort of went down that path in the beginning, um, but approached it in a very different way because the Chinese see themselves as the largest market in the world and therefore if you want to do business in China, you need to do business with the Chinese as opposed to the Japanese who were, you know, how much is it for Sony, for TriStar Columbia, we'll just buy it. Yeah, I was going to ask you, do you see, uh, would it, if you woke up tomorrow and the Hollywood Reporter said that China or a Chinese company had bought a Hollywood studio, would that completely surprise you? Do you think there's no way that would happen or you could think, well, okay, that's something that might happen? Well, you know, I put nothing past the Chinese and, uh, you know, I have no idea why sometimes they do the things that they do. But one thing that has remained a common thread in, in my relationships with Chinese and, you know, from a, from a corporate and governmental point of view is that most every deal that, is, um, that takes place in China is almost always at its core level about land and real estate. It, it, you know, it, it, it might look like it's about developing a studio or it might look like it's about developing um, an art form, but at the core, it's really about a land grab. That's kind of interesting and something that I, I guess, didn't really, I mean, I don't perceive it that way, I guess, but you've probably experienced it a lot more than I have close hand. But Scott, can I ask you what, just changing tax, what you, sure. your assessment is of the Asian and Chinese technical capabilities, um, just with a completely different hat on, like their just level of um, uh, skills uh, across the board, including, of course, the important digital skills. Um, you know, there are always outstanding people wherever you are, right? And so there are outstanding Chinese film directors and outstanding Chinese actors, actors and there are outstanding Chinese visual effects people. Um, on the visual effects side of things, from a technical perspective, I've always, and, and at times I think I've been, you know, chided for it or run over the coals, but given my experiences is that you know, if you find talented people and you put them through, you put them through the, the cycle of doing a world-class movie a few times, they get it. It's not the reason why there are so many more um, qualified visual effects people that come from places like, you know, the States and Canada and Australia and the, and the UK has more to do with They've just had more practice. It's not like there's something innately uh, superb about a Western visual effects artist over an, over an Eastern visual effects artist. It's just that they've 
they've played in the major leagues um, more often than their Chinese counterparts. And it's only a matter of time before those guys and gals start to play in the major leagues and there will be the cream that will rise and there will be world-class visual effects artists and Academy Award winners that are not from the UK and not from the United States or New Zealand. We've discussed uh, China a lot when referring to Asia. Um, oh, and you have mentioned Japan, of course, but away from China, is there any particular countries or areas, Korea, um, uh, anywhere else that you know, you've know uh, you paid attention to that's of interest? Well, you know, again, I, I've spent an inordinate amount of time in Japan over the last 20, 25 years, and I've spent a reasonable amount of time in Korea as well. Um, and those are the three sort of powerhouses coming out of Asia. Um, <clears throat> the Japanese were interesting in the sense that as Japan started to become, um, you know, an economic powerhouse, as, is, as often happens, they wind up sending their children to schools outside of their country to become more global. And we, we, we saw that you know, as Japan came online as an industrial power in the mid-1800s, you know, um, at the end of the Edo period, all of a sudden we started to see the sons of high-powered Japanese businessmen and royalty studying in Paris and in London. Um, and we see that all the time. But what happened with the Japanese was that the Japanese were sent to the United States and or London or France to study things like engineering. They, they really weren't sent to study the arts. And then the next wave, tap, wave happened in Korea where um, many of the Korean kids of the well-heeled Korean business people were sent to uh, overseas to study, but they were studying the arts. I mean, I recall my children now are you know, in their 30s, but if we go back 15 years or so, um, one of my one of my kids went to a fairly prestigious arts academy here in California, and I'd say probably seventy percent of the orchestra were Korean kids. Right. So, as a result of that, we see, and again, this is all my opinion. As a result of that, I saw Korean films, for example, looking much more exciting with a lot more of a Fincher-esque. Um, sensibility than, let's say, anything coming out of Japan during the 80s and early 90s. Um, there was manga coming out of Japan, but in terms of live-action filmmaking, live-action filmmaking in Asia really, I think, focused on the Korean kids that were coming to film schools around the world and studying international cinema. And so, you know, if we look at cinema in Asia, at least from my perspective, um, the Korean films are the ones that stand out. You know, there are very, besides, you know, some manga or Miyazaki or something like that, you really don't see very many Japanese films that sort of blow you away. Similarly, you know, if you look at actors, um, even when Spielberg winds up doing memoirs of a geisha, he winds up not casting Japanese women in the roles of geisha because the whole Japanese uh, talent base was not, I think, up to snuff. Japanese talent 
you know, there are singers and dancers and actors and performers and comedians all rolled into one, but they, they did not have the serious um, uh, sort of chops as, as actors and actresses. And now when Korea starts to come online, um, a lot of the films that came out of Korea from a directorial point of view, as well as, you know, sort of production design and, and, and the other crafts, except for maybe visual effects, really starts to um, shine coming out of Korea because of that schooling process, right? Um, and China is um, you know, sort of still sort of coming online, but we see companies like Base Effects, which does pretty world-class work. So are the, are the Asian men and women in the visual effects world up to snuff as A players like, you know, DNEG or Framestore, any one of the major players, not yet, but it's only a matter of time. Let me, um, let me ask you about SIDGRAPH itself. Uh, have you, I mean, SIDGRAPH in Asia has been going now for what, I mean, eight years or something. Um, mm. <clears throat> have you attended the other SIDGRAPHs in Asia? How do you view SIDGRAPH Asia as a conference? I went to SIDGRAPH Asia in 2009. In Japan? Um, in Japan, it was in Yokohama, mm-hmm. I think. Yep. And I and I gave a, a talk there. It was, you know, it was an interesting situation. I'm trying to remember the name. He's an old friend. Um, I want to say his name was Masaki, or but he he was the head of SIGGRAPH Asia Japan, and I wound up flying over to give a talk about sort of the state of affairs of business and what was happening around the world. And interestingly enough, I was programmed, I guess, on the last day of the conference. And my talk was about, I'd say, 9 o'clock in the morning. And I walked into this gargantuan room. And there were maybe 50 people sitting in the audience. So, um, you know, my experience with SIGGRAPH Asia, at least that one time, because it was the only time that I was there, um, was considerably less than what I had hoped for. (laughs) Well, I must admit, I've given a paper or thing talk at SIDGRAPH in, uh, I think we were in, um, gosh, uh, I'm going to say New Orleans in um, 09. And I was like at four o'clock on the last day, I think it was. <laughs> and, right. and we had people just walking out. But I think they were mainly walking out because they were getting uh, transport. At least that's what I told myself. <laughs> but <laughs> that last slot is uh, no matter where you are in the world. But I mean, I just wondering about it because like geographically, because in fact, uh, the one in Asia has jumped around. Bet- it's been Singapore a couple of times, and um, but it has been Korea, Hong Kong uh, a couple of times. In terms of the main SIDGRAPH, uh, for the last since uh, New Orleans, where I <laughs> where I emptied a room, where um, your where your where your initial standing performance was, yes, yes, in in '09, it's been Los right. Angeles, Vancouver, Anaheim, Los Angeles, Vancouver, Anaheim, and it will continue to be thus for the next couple of years. Uh-huh. Um, this seems to exclude London and uh, in Europe. Do you think there's a need to look at a SIDGRAPH jumping the pond and um, because it feels like the Asian community does get served by what I think is a, is a great conference. Um, smaller, obviously, but nevertheless, it is able to uh, deal with local issues. Um, or do you think SIDGRAPH as the main conference services the world? You know, I, I look at other conferences. You know, as you know, you probably know I'm involved with this conference called Trojan Horse Was a Unicorn, which yep. took place in Troya, Portugal recently. And, you know, that has a very different feel than SIGGRAPH, but it definitely addressed 
um, that part of the world. And, you know, we had attendees, I think, from 43 different countries, 600 attendees. Um, and it felt very different than a SIGGRAPH. Similarly, you know, there's FMX, um, which it's in a lot of ways is, yeah. yeah, which is a lot of ways is very similar to SIGGRAPH. Um, it's large in scope and it addresses very many of the same things that SIGGRAPH addresses. And it's a great conference. So should there be a SIGGRAPH in, in, in Europe? Um, I, I don't know. I think maybe FMX addresses that. So uh, the uh, conference that's uh, going to be held at, um, in, uh, in China, the thing about conferences these days is obviously the stuff that's on the net. And um, I guess, you know, you've done this, uh, as you said, that in fact we've got a story coming up on it, the uh, recent conference, the Trojan stuff. But what is the purpose of like going to a conference these days? I mean, so much stuff is on the net. I mean, what, why is there a value to be in the room? From my perspective or yeah. from an attendee's no, from you, perspective? From your perspective. Oh, well, for either, I guess. But, I mean, you know, you, you're involved with conferences. You're speaking at them. You must have an opinion as to why it's valid being in the room versus just trying to get stuff off the net. Yeah, I mean, my agenda is is fairly straightforward. I'm sort of like a WYSIWYG kind of guy. And my agenda is to be able to spread the gospel um, about why the visual effects and animation industry is is treated like the bastard stepchild of the cinema industry and that um, and that that the cinema the film industry continues to sort of bitch slap it every chance it can get and that what should be a really proud and important part of filmmaking and advertising and and media as a whole um, has been relegated to sort of the back seat, you know, go to the back of the bus. And so I'm in a unique situation, which is I don't really care what, you know, um, the head of the head of post-production and visual effects at Warner Brothers, Sony, Disney, or whatever says about me, because I'm not going to get hired anyway. <laughs> right? Wait, and, yeah, you, and you, I, you are in a position of experience and one of uh, being a bit fearless, I would say. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I remember years ago, and I guess it was the early 90s, um, I gave a talk at the four A's, the Advertising Association of America, and uh, the keynote speaker was Jay Shiat, who is a friend of mine, but, you know, sort of like the grand old man of, yeah. of advertising. And Jay just got up there and spoke from his heart and had no fear whatsoever and said all of the things that I wish I would have said but didn't have the cojones to do it. And afterwards he walked off the stage and I said, wow. And he said, yeah, because I don't care. Right. And so um, I find myself luckily in that place at my age. And, and now I can speak out and sort of spread the gospel in the way that um, – I can do that without any fear or retribution so that I'm aware ir of. Ironically, it's actually caring to not care, if you know what I mean. Um, That's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and that, uh, you know, it's like I can get up in front of people and, you know, just, just speak my, the truth and speak the truth to power and speak from my heart. And, you know, having 30 years experience in the industry have a pretty interesting sort of view of the way I see things. And, and the effort is, it's not like I get paid for this stuff, right? It's the effort is, um, 
to try to save a dying industry. And that's sort of what I'm about. And so uh, it's a lot better when you're in the room and it's a lot better when you can have interactive conversations and you can sit over a drink uh, and or dinner or, you know, sitting outside and having a conversation with 15 people than it is to have that conversation, let's say, uh, even on Visual Effects so- Soldier or, or on, on your website because we don't know who these people are and ideas come up out of nowhere and, you know, you're constantly sort of trying to fight a fight against an opponent that probably isn't real and doesn't know what they're talking about. So I think one is a lot more effective when you can see the whites of their eyes. Yeah, well, I certainly am as as somebody who... (laughs) who's clearly a, uh, got a huge stake in online, uh, see enormous benefit in being in the room. Um, and I'm certainly looking forward to, to hearing you speak in the room. But as you say, I think uh, one of the big advantages for SIDGRAPH Asia is that it is a smaller conference, so you can uh, you know, literally hang out with amazing people in the breaks and run into people and talk to them. And it's not, um, I've not known people to be in any way shy about having those discussions. I found people incredibly approachable at uh, something like SIDGRAPH because everybody's assumed to be there for the same reason. And right. uh, just it's a really healthy environment. And uh, so I'm, I was incredibly glad to see that you're um, a keynote speaker because uh, I'm looking forward to hearing you speak, even though I obviously know you. Thank you so much for taking time to talk to us today, Scott. We really you're appreciate it. You're quite welcome. My best to you, and I, I, I'll see you in Shenzhen. See you there. Thanks save, so much. Save, save some baijiu for me. <laughs> well, thanks to Mike and Scott. I'm really looking forward to hearing about the keynote after it's over. From time to time in conversations with artists, I've had people ask me, you know, it seems like a lot of the same voices always seem to be there. And I'm, I'm going to loop Scott Ross in on that. I've had people ask me, why is he always speaking out? And I think Scott, at the end of that podcast, really explained well why he cares so much and his unique position in the industry to be able to speak out and and be an advocate. Really, really amazing. And I have to say, when I'm around L.A. and attending meetings, either public or small ones, and I can rely on a certain few key people that will always be there and uh, when asked. And I've spent many hours with Scott at his house. He spent hours here in meetings and at meeting halls, anywhere people talk about making visual effects better, Scott will be there if you ask. And uh, he's been just a great uh, inspiration to me. And passion to me is what got me in the business. And I respect passion. So I'm grateful to have such a strong advocate in our corner. So I'm excited to see that he's getting to lead off this this uh, conference. Um, speaking of passion, we've had people over the years who really like what we do here at FX Guide and uh, asked us how they could help. Because obviously we don't really... Bam- banner ad you to death on the site. We don't try to hammer you with a lot of advertising, for example, like a lot of sites do. And so we rely on uh, the FX Insider program to help us bring you more stuff. Uh, It's an inexpensive way to help contribute to what we do if you care about what we do here at FX Guide and help us keep it a free service and keep it it banner free and clean and and, uh, as detailed as it has been over the years, uh, help us grow. Go on over to fxguide.com and click the FX Insider tab for information. You've been listening to the FX Podcast, as I mentioned at the beginning. We also produced other audio podcasts, The VFX Show, which reviews visual effects and current releases, and we also cover classic films from time to time. We also recently did one on video games, so you might want to check that one out. That's a very interesting show because it's more of an opinion show, um, constructive criticism, let's say. And then we do the RC podcast, which covers digital cinematography, a lot of changes in that market constantly, cameras every week, it seems. Uh, 
We also do a video podcast, a high-definition video podcast, FX Guide TV, which recently we just had a big interview with Richard Edland, which I thought was a fascinating uh, discussion. Um, and we do a lot of work over on FX Guide uh, TV. A lot of um, There's hundreds of episodes, and it's a great resource to check out. You can find all of these, as well as written articles, news, and more at fxguide.com. And as I mentioned, the FX PhD site, which offers extensive online training. So that'll do it for this episode. For my partners, Mike Seymour and John Montgomery, I'm Jeff Huser. We'll see you on the next FX Podcast. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide, LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.